you bow your heads and pray with me. Most merciful God, we thank you that you are here and that you are present with us. Lord, would you give me clarity and speech this morning by your spirit? Lord, for all of us here this morning, would you give us ears to hear what you have said clearly and what you continue to say in Holy Scripture to this present day? Lord, in many ways, this present evil age, we ask that you would help us to hear the word of life. God, even in the midst of suffering, we pray that you would give us strength by the gospel here this morning. Lord, I thank you for the many who are here. I lift up those who are not able to be with us for various reasons here this morning, whether for illness or for travel. Would you bring them back to us quickly, we pray. And God, would you humble us this morning? Lord, let me be humble before you this morning. Lord, I thank you that it is not by strength, not by the will of man, but by your mercy and by your power alone that we have salvation. And so help us to cast all of our hope and our cares upon you this morning, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I encourage you to open up your Bible to 1 Peter, 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter. Now, my, my mind and my heart and my soul have been all over the place this week, so I want you to bear with me for a few minutes as I wander on a long, circuitous path to 1 Peter, okay? We're going to get there. We will get there, um, but I want to uh, bring you in on my week, bring you in my week a little bit. Our first reading from our lectionary this week had two options. That's pretty common, especially when there's a, a New Testament or a Old Testament option in the first lesson. Um, so we had, we had an option from Acts. That was the first option. Acts chapter 17 and verse 2. This was from our, one of our readings that we could have had this morning. From the Old Testament scriptures, Paul explained and proved, and this is what he explained and proved, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead. It, it stood out to me in reading it this week. I began this week reading Acts with this in mind, reading this phrase in mind over and over again, and I noticed many things. For example, at Gamaliel's court, when the apostles are brought before the Jews, right at the beginning in Acts chapter 5, they were beaten. They were beaten, and they were happy for it. The apostles were happy to be beaten, for they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Okay? A few chapters later, the Apostle Paul, kind of famously, he gets knocked off of his high horse, and then God says to him, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So that was the first part of my week. I was in Acts. I was in a place of contemplating suffering. But later in the week, partly from reflecting upon an article, which I'll talk about here in a few minutes, that was sent to me, I read through our, our second lectionary option from Deuteronomy 6, which Kevin read for us this morning. And so I spent the next few days reading through the book of De Deuteronomy. That's my habit. I read the text, and then I read the text in context. So I'm just reading, just reading a lot of Bible. Uh, before I even get to commentaries, I didn't even get to commentaries on Deuteronomy. So our reading this morning from the Old Testament, our first lesson began with a father answering his son's question. And the question is basically, 
Dad, what's with all these laws? Dad, what's with all these laws? Deuteronomy begins with multiple restatements, with multiple restatements of the commandments given to God's people at Sinai. As they're about to enter into the land, it's stated in a new and fresh way for the people as, about, uh, as they enter into the land. When they sit down, you guys are familiar with this from earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 6, when they sit down, when they walk together, when they lie down to sleep, when they wake up, as if they have it wrapped, these commandments wrapped around their foreheads, or they nail them to the front door, right? This is, this is the idea in Deuteronomy 6. There's a lot of repetition. And so the son asks about these commandments, which are plastered on their forehead. This is the image. And his father responds to his son's question by telling him a story. By telling him the story of how they were slaves in Egypt. He wasn't born there. He was born along the way. And about how the Lord saved them out of Egypt. And because of this, even now as they walk as exiles in a foreign land, because of God's grace and mercy alone, this is the reason. This is the reason why they were saved out of Egypt. Because of this, that's why we obey his statutes. That's why we talk about them all the time. We should be careful to obey all his commandments. And then the rest of the, the, rest of the book of Deuteronomy. They suffered many things in the wilderness, the people of Israel, and many did not enter into that rest. And this was another thing that was coming out as I was reading. And so Acts gave way to Deuteronomy, and then it led me to Hebrews. I was thinking about going off lectionary, and I just started reading Hebrews a lot because I heard Hebrews all over Deuteronomy. There's probably a dissertation written somewhere about that, which then led me back to that article that was sent to me this week that I mentioned earlier. Now, with all of that in mind, that's my, that's my journey this week. That's my introduction. All of this is coloring my reading this morning. This article led me back to 1 Peter, back to 1 Peter where we've been for the last couple of weeks, which I'll spend the rest of my time reflecting on this morning. So what did that article say? I know you're, you've been waiting for another article. You guys have been reading a lot of articles, okay? So as many of you know, I, I've had the Industrial Revolution on my brain for months now, which sounds just as interesting as it sounds, right? So naturally, when Father Derek, who's a priest up in Charleston, he sent an article to a group of us from this month's Touchstone magazine about men and women and industrialization, that's pretty cool. I like to not be alone whenever I'm thinking about things. Uh, we're all in many ways um, in the spirit of the age or responding to the spirit of the age. So none of us are original. It's good for us to know over and over again. I gladly, though, I gladly chased another rabbit trail. So I've been chasing Bible rabbit trails. And so I didn't know where I was going, what I was doing. So I just distracted myself with another article. And this one by a theologian and scholar named Nancy Piercy. And she outlines in this article many foolish and silly fruits that have been brought about by industrialization. As feminism was beginning to respond to the inequalities in our new market-driven world, in the mid-20th century, evangelicals, and she summarizes this, responded with what was called muscular Christianity. Has anybody heard that phrase? Muscular Christianity. It's the reason why we have gymnasiums attached to most of our, ch our, our church buildings. 
It's the reason why the YMCA exists, among many other things. Jesus was, quote, no dough-faced lick-spittle proposition. Jesus was, quote, the greatest scrapper that ever lived. That's old language, kids, for fighter, okay? He's the greatest fighter that ever lived. One famous evangelist in the middle of the 20th century preached a, quote, hard-muscled, pickaxed religion, not some, quote, dainty, sissified, lily-livered piety. That's muscular Christianity. That's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of things going on in that summary there. Um, but this is, this is the tone. This is the mood. This is the 20th century's reaction to what they found to be big problems in feminism. Now, both femininity and masculinity had become problems. And I hope to demonstrate just a little bit this morning why both of those are problems. Both of those, this and the reaction to this, both progressive feminism and conservative muscular Christianity were bad answers. They were bad answers, but it wasn't her excellent survey of our recent industrial history that got me on a rabbit trail, really. At the end of her article, I know that you... I'm setting it up, guys. I'm just keep going. Stay with me. Stay with me. Piercy highlights some more research, okay? So bear with me just for a little bit longer. This is research from a sociologist from the University of Virginia who concludes, quote, the happiest of all wives in America are religious conservatives who hold conservative gender values. So this is not from a like a Bible think tank somewhere in the middle of the country, right? This is from a, from a Princeton-trained, internationally recognized sociologist and studies that he's done. Why? Why does he, why does he say this? Why are uh, American wives or religious conservatives who have traditional gender values, why are they more happy? That was, that was the question that the sociologist was trying to answer. And for many reasons... But the main one is that, and he, he says this over and over again, that fathers are encouraged to be actively involved in the lives of their children when they go to church. Be involved in the lives of your children. Don't leave mom to do it all by themselves. Now, a lot of this feels like our home turf a little bit. It's like some outsider doing some kind of study from a foreign uh, planet. You know, it's like, yeah, it's kind of no duh, right? We've been there. We've been there for a little while, but even that wasn't the reason that got me on a rabbit trail, and I'm getting there. I'm still there. I'm setting it up. I'm still setting it up, okay? There's some shocking data at the end of her article about domestic violence, about domestic violence. If, according to this research, a mother and a father are committed to gathering with the church weekly, this, this group of people is the lowest rate of domestic violence in our nation, 2.8%. That's a terrible number. That means almost three out of every 100 people in a church who gather there every week are violently oppressing their wives, okay? All right, so that's one. That's, that, that's some data. But listen to this. Listen to this. The highest rate of domestic violence of any demographic group in America at 7.2%. So more than seven out of every hundred men. More than secular people. So more than people who are atheists or agnostic 
and don't hold into any Christian values at all, more than secular people who claim any religion at all, the highest rate of domestic violence is for, quote, nominal evangelical Protestants who attend church infrequently or not at all. Let me say that again. Okay, so confessing Christians who go to church, a small, the smallest percentage among groups in this study for domestic violence. Those who claim that but don't actually go to church, that is the highest degree, the highest domestic violence, okay? I'm getting a little bit maybe closer to some of our homes. Nancy Piercy, responding to this data at the end of her article, says this. It seems that many nominal men hang around the fringes of the Christian world just enough to hear the language of headship and submission, but not enough to learn the biblical meaning of those terms. Like skimming the news headlines without reading the actual stories, they cherry-pick verses from the Bible and read them through a grid of male superiority and entitlement they have absorbed from the secular guy code. Then they manipulate scripture to justify their abusive behavior. And I might add, it's not just the secular guy code, it's the muscular Christianity that we've inherited. This is not just out there stuff, this is in here stuff. More than seven out of every 100 men that claim conservative Christianity on our government census every year, but don't go to church, their anger turns to violence more easily than secular brothers, secular men, more easily. And they justify their violence towards their children and towards their brides, their own flesh, because, and you might have heard some of these kinds of things, because radical feminism is ruining America. Or because the world, the problem with the world is that women don't submit. Or something like, God has told me to lead this house, and you better listen or else. This kind of rhetoric this kind of speech, and this kind of physical domination. All sin is bad. Let me, I'm just going to start with that basic statement. All sin is bad. Sinful anger, like many other sins, is destructive. It leads to death. It does not lead to life. But, and this is true with any category of sin, when we justify our sin with spiritual language, it always gets worse. Let me say that again. When we justify our sin with Bible language, without wisdom, without the gathered community knocking off our foolishness, it always gets worse. A war against feminism is bad. A holy war against feminism is worse. A holy war. When we, when we put transcendent religious significance to it, we act like fools. If the secular culture baptizes sexual foolishness and calls it good, people who check conservative Christian on a box but who don't gather every week to hear the word of God, they baptize false masculinity, and it happens all around us. I think we're pretty familiar with this. Muscular Christianity, or else 
Jesus is an MMA-loving, pickaxed man, the greatest scrapper that ever lived. It was this statistical fact that led me back to 1 Peter. So I read that article, and it kind of gathered my thoughts and woke me up a little bit. So here's some questions that I've been considering in light of 1 Peter. When women gather as the church on Sunday morning, what is it that they hear that makes married traditional Christian women the happiest of all wives in America? Okay, Among the gatherers, statistically, what is it? What is it that they hear that leads to flourishing? More flourishing than average. When men faithfully gather with God's people, what is it that they hear that leads them to show honor to their wives instead of domineering over them with satanic power or else false Gentile-like authority? What is it? What do they hear? Well, I think it's letters like 1 Peter. So last Sunday, I called everyone from 1 Peter chapter 2 to receive our suffering as a gift, to receive it as a gift from God. And this is a big challenge. This is, in many ways, a daily challenge that we encounter multiple times a day. We are called to submit ourselves even to evil emperors, according to Peter, even the worst emperor supreme, even and especially our wicked bosses, your bad bosses, not just your good bosses, but your wicked and evil masters. Peter says, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example so that we might follow in his steps. This is why he calls us to receive their authority, even their, the suffering that they cause, the unjust suffering, as gracious, as a gracious thing in the sight of God. And we can do this, not only because Jesus suffered for us and redeemed us, but, as we saw last week, he watches over us. Even in the midst of our suffering, when it feels like he's abandoned us, he is watching over us. Even as we are unjustly persecuted for bearing his name in the world, he is good. He is our shepherd, Peter says. He is our bishop or our overseer, overseer of our souls. So directly after this reading from 1 Peter chapter 2 last week, Peter turns his attention away from evil kings and foolish masters to our New Testament reading this morning. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, he turns his attention from out there to in here. From out there to in here, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, he turns to the most intimate space of all, or else the home, the household. This principle of receiving... And, as he'll say later in chapter 4, rejoicing in our suffering. So we're not only called to receive it as a gracious thing from our Lord, but to rejoice in our suffering as a participation, as a share in the sufferings of Christ. This isn't just for emperors and bosses, and especially the evil ones, the bad ones. It's for a wife, Peter says, in relationship to her husband. And he remembers, he remembers the story of faithful Old Testament women. He mentioned Sarah, but with Sarah, all these faithful wives. Peter calls 
Christian wives, holy women, holy women to submit to their husbands in honor of Jesus, their good shepherd and overseer of their souls. And again, in a similar manner, not to your good husband, not to the good emperor or else the good boss or to a good husband, but he says to even to a disobedient husband, one who does not obey. He does not say all women are called to be subject to all men. He does not say that. But within the home, Peter calls wives to be subject to their own, even their own disobedient, and maybe especially, according to many scholars, even their own disobedient husband as to the Lord Jesus himself. And in this way, they entrust their souls, faithful wives entrust their soul to the good shepherd. Likewise, 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7, husbands, they are to live with their wives in an understanding way. Spend the rest of your life on that clause, husbands. Showing honor to your wife as one who is physically weaker and therefore requires not only your physical protection, but even more than that, she needs your gentleness, husband. Show her gentle honor because she is a fellow heir, Peter says, a full heir with you of the promise. The grace of life in Christ is just as much hers as it is yours. Paul says it like this, love, simply love your wife, love her, not your good wife, okay, not, not your wife in her best moment, but your disobedient wife, love her, show her honor, be gentle with her, love her not only out of reverence for Jesus, the overseer and bishop of your soul, love her because you are one flesh with her, you don't hate your own body, love her. You are the head and she is the body and neither can live without the other. Love her. Live with your wife in an understanding way so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is antithetical to muscular Christianity. Our electionary didn't want me to read or preach on those verses this morning. I substituted those in. It's right along, it's right along the natural reading. We had a couple readings from 1 Peter chapter 1, and then we had a reading from 1 Peter chapter 2 last week, and then we skipped this section that we just talked about just for a little bit, and then we go to the end of chapter 3 next week which we're actually going to substitute out because we have an ordination next week and we have some confirmation. So we're going to have a different lectionary reading. So we, we would have skipped all of chapter three in the next couple of weeks and jumped backwards in time to the first part of chapter two. And that article impressed on me this week. We can't do that. We can't do that for many reasons. I don't I actually, I don't know why. I don't know why our lectionary chose to skip these verses. I have my suspicions. Here's some of my suspicions. I'm not exactly comfortable preaching these words. That might be one reason why you skip over the first seven verses of 1 Peter chapter 3. Because I'm afraid. 
I am afraid and I want people to like me. It, I'm just, I'm, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. That's a, probably a good reason. Preaching about a wife submitting to her husband is the most delicate and tender sermon and it requires the utmost gentleness and there is no way there is no way that I can delicately apply it to every person in this room. Even in John Chrysostom's day, he said, if we preach faithfully in this way, some men will call this way of talking about what it means to be the head of household a token of womanish cowardice. That's, that's what Chrysostom was accused of. You might be accused, if you, if you talk about headship in such a way that it is a dying, it is a serving, it is a gentle headship. I have my suspicions, but I don't know. I don't want to impugn the character of those who chose our lectionary readings. I don't know why they were inclu not included, but we're not going to skip them. We're not going to skip them, and here is why. Peter ends this letter exhorting and declaring that everything written in this letter is the true grace of God. That's how he ends this letter. It's the true grace of God, and he says, stand firm in it. Don't waver away from it. Stand firm in it. We cannot skip over speaking about headship and submission because it is on every page of the Bible. From the garden, from the garden all the way to Christ marrying his bride on the last page. There is, there is a invitation to lay down our lives, all of us, in different ways. We cannot leave the definition of headship or patriarchy or whatever else you want to call it, what it means to be a conservative evangelical husband. We cannot leave it to the internet. We cannot leave it to Joe Rogan or Joe Biden or Jordan Peterson. It doesn't work. It leads to foolishness and violence. It's horrible. If your view of headship leads to outbursts of anger, more and not less, to more domestic violence, if, that is that, if that's what's happening, and it's happening right now, it's happening all around us, if that is your view in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we need, and I need to rebuke that. It is a false headship, and it needs to burn in hell with the devil. It is, it is false. We need strong husbands to protect what Peter calls their weaker wives. They're not weaker. They're not weaker intellectually or spiritually or emotionally. Very often, actually, it's the reverse. They are the stronger ones in almost every category. A reflection from the last part of Deuteronomy this week. We need fathers to rush to the defense of their now married daughters who are abused and falsely accused by a wicked husband and to defend her honor and who will take that guy out in the street and whip him. That's what we need. This is the commandment of the Lord. We need obedient husbands, humble and gentle, but fierce with foolish men who are strong and who protect those whom God has given 
to them. John Chrysostom, in a sermon from Ephesians chapter 5, puts it like this. A servant can be taught submission through fear. Or else a slave, okay? That same word there. A servant can be taught submission through fear. But even he, if provoked too much, will soon seek his escape. He will soon seek his escape. But one's partner for life, the mother of one's children, the source of one's every joy, should never be fettered with fear and threats. Never, but with love and patience. What kind of marriage can there be when the wife is afraid of her husband? What sort of satisfaction could a husband himself have if he lives with his wife as if she were a slave and not with a woman by her own free will? Suffer anything for her sake, but never disgrace her. Never. For Christ never did this with the church. Every false masculinity, and it doesn't matter what age, every false masculinity or else false femininity exalted in the church or in the world, every one of them will be burned up in the end. This is the language that Peter uses in our reading. Like the undefiled and unfading inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, Peter says that gentleness, gentleness is imperishable. Like the inheritance of the gospel that is secure in heaven with Christ for you, gentleness is imperishable. Outward beauty fades away. The outward appearance of power and authority will wither as your back falls apart and all your muscles shrivel, men. It'll fade away as you grow old. It will all be burned up. It's fleeting. It's perishable. But a gentle heart... And a quiet spirit that submits to Jesus out there and in here, in every place. He who suffered for us, Jesus, when we were whoring, a whoring, faithless bride, he was patient and merciful and gentle with us. We were not a good bride. We were a disobedient bride. The worst there could be, he was gentle. He was patient. Our submission to the statutes or else the commandments of King Jesus, who is the shepherd and overseer of our souls, will never perish. Follow him. Peter concludes his letter by remembering his sight of Jesus. And I, I want to recall you back a few weeks ago when Peter was standing across the courtyard from Jesus and I imagined that he saw his face. Even as he denied Jesus three times, he saw the sorrowful eyes of Jesus as he was being whipped. He saw Jesus suffer because of his cowardice, because of his sins, because of his desire to appear strong in the face of accusations. He was afraid even of a little girl. Peter remembers Hear this from 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder 
and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. A witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, and so listen, children, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. All of us, all of you, priests and laity, elders, and children, husbands and wives, married and single, young and old, submit to Jesus. This is the way of life. Obey his commandments and be humble and quiet and gentle and patient. Repeat. And when you're not, when you're prone to fits of anger, repent and receive forgiveness. Endure suffering, even in the intimate space of your home. Be patient with a disobedient husband or else a disobedient wife. That's all of us. We have to win each other with patience and with gentleness. Husbands, obey Jesus. Wives, obey Jesus so that your obedience can be joyful and it won't be suffering. It won't be grudgingly trying to obey in the midst of a disobedient spouse hurling accusations at you. It is an immeasurable grace to me that I have the freedom to submit. That's, that's one of my favorite things about being an Anglican. I, I'm not alone, and not only am I not alone, I get to submit to my bishop. I'm under him. I am under his authority, thanks be to God. I am not alone. I thank God that this week he will examine my life and my doctrine. Very closely, he will do this. I thank God for his gentle and strong oversight, and you should give thanks with me. It's, it's a gift. It's a gift. We get to be with our good under-shepherd next week, and I'm so thankful for that. Our overseer next Sunday, and I cannot wait. Some of us even get to receive the grace of embodying everything I've talked about here this morning of getting on our knees before a loving earthly father so that he can bless you, so that he can bless you and he can call you into humble, fruitful lives of submission to the heavenly father. Even as you submit to a good earthly father, both Scott as he comes to the priesthood and many who are coming for confirmation Jesus was made perfect through suffering. This is reflected in the Acts of the Apostles. It's all over Deuteronomy. It is the theme, the undercurrent of the writer of Hebrews, and it is all over this letter. It's all over 1 Peter. So with Jesus and Peter and Paul and with James, no matter your station in life, today remember that only Jesus gives more grace. 
Only Jesus can give you more and more grace because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Draw near to God. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand. Let us confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed.